Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hi, I'm Ryan Meeks, and after years of trying to make life work as a struggling artist, independent filmmaker, and musician, I thought to myself, hey, self, wouldn't it be helpful to ask other artists how they're finding their path in this world? And so now, that's exactly what I'm doing on a bi-weekly basis. Welcome to the Path of Art. So welcome to the Path of Art podcast. Today we have Derek Dyer, Executive Director of the Utah Arts Alliance and artist himself. Welcome to the show, Derek. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So let's let the, our, our listeners know a little bit about you. Where did, where did you start in art? Oh, uh, So um, the first time I remember doing art, quote unquote, uh, the, uh, it was probably when my so when I was very, very young, my mother took some oil painting classes, and I always remember thinking that was very cool. It's one of my first memories. Um, I was probably about five years old, something like that, and uh, I remember um, her going to that class, and I think I was just hanging out in the back playing with Hot Wheels on the ground or something like that. But um, I remember uh, that having a lot of impact on me and thinking that was very cool. I didn't fully understand what the art class was, um, but it was an oil painting class. And then um, fast forward just a couple years, she did not take up painting, <laughs> but uh, she gave me her oil paints, oh. which I wouldn't necessarily suggest doing to uh, other seven-year-olds, but um, uh, it's because they're kind of messy and, and uh, smelly and stuff. Right, but, but there's but, a lot of cleanup that had to happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, she gave those to me, and I um, I did a, I did some paintings with them, and I just loved it. I, I just... Um, really enjoyed it. And I think one of the things that really struck me about art was that when uh, she gave me those paints, I mean, of course, I had colored with crayons in school and just everything uh, that most people probably experience. But um, uh, I asked her what I should paint. And she said, you can paint whatever you want. And that kind of stuck with me as like, oh, if it's in art, you can actually do whatever you want. It was the first right. time I had actually been told, that, you know, you can do whatever you want, you know, like that's up to you. Your imagination is the limit, you know. And so um, that that always struck me as like, oh, wow, art with art, you can do anything, you know. And so um, that was kind of the first spark for me of that. Um, and then when I was about 14, 15, I started getting a little bit more serious, um, you know, getting canvases, getting paint, um, and really using a lot of found objects and found materials to uh, create sculptural things. And a lot of it was just kind of like what you would imagine a 15 or 16-year-old could cobble together, so maybe not the right. best. Um, but it was a great start, and uh, and I just felt this, um, this feeling of uh, – it's just a good feeling. Um, it's therapeutic. It's 
uh, is very empowering. Yeah. So it just especially as a teenager going through all of those feelings, you know, that we all go through in the in that age. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very therapeutic for me. Helped me process. I also found a great support group of friends and um, and folks that were also interested in the arts as well. And so that was. Uh, and some of those friendships uh, I still have t- to this day, you know, so that's going on 30 years now for the record. <laughs> right. So so that kind of leads me to something I wanted to ask you about, the Illuminator. Uh-huh. The Illuminator. So this is a sculpture that you did that's the largest disco ball in the United States. Yes. yes. So how how far along were you in your in your artist journey, your your path, until you created that sculpture? Sure. Um well, so we'd probably have to go back to 2003 when uh, I created the first disco ball, which was in the Guinness Book of World Records. It was in the 50th anniversary Guinness Book of World Records, so that which was the 2005 book. Um, that was my original disco ball. That was 10 foot in diameter. Um, and uh, as with all records, you know, they kind of get broken and people kind of move in. And Yeah, then and someone else gets the, the biggest record after that and, yeah. and so on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So a lot of the art that I've been doing over the last – 15 plus years has been sort of um, event specific installation art or interactive art, but as a lot, especially for events or like uh, one off sort of installation type pop up type things. Um, so, with this current disco ball, the Illuminator, um, it was about 10 years ago, probably about eight, eight or nine years ago, something like that. Uh, the city was looking for a fireworks alternative to celebrate New Year's Eve because of the the air quality. And the noise and everything, yeah. all the probably the issues. dryness too. Yeah, the dryness. All the, there's mm-hmm. several issues there that I think they were trying to confront, and they asked me if I had any ideas, and I threw out a couple ideas. Um, uh, I was working with the Downtown Alliance on this at the time when they were throwing uh, First Night, I think it was called at the time, and then Eve. Uh, and uh, I said, I was like, well, I can make a new disco ball. I was, <laughs> at that point, my old disco ball was pretty much decommissioned. Um, it, it just ran its course and was too damaged to uh, show again. So I suggested building a new disco ball and uh, I could make it twice as big and um, it would be spectacular. And so we were able to uh, figure that out. And uh, we um, we built that for Originally for uh, the the next three New Year's Eves, which we did show at the Salt Palace um, to crowds, you know, 20,000, 30,000 people, whatever, uh, that would congregate for that. And that, that was kind of this, the focal point of New Year's Eve. Um, and then uh, since then, I've been able to show that in Miami, in uh, Phoenix. Um, I, this year I'm taking it to Bonnaroo in Tennessee, um, Electric Forest Festival in um, Michigan. And there's some other uh, potential festival dates too. So, so yeah, the the Illuminator is still shining bright and nice. uh, going around to uh, all around the country. And and, and uh, that's the one that you can that you can go inside, right? The one yeah. that you can sit in it and, and, it, and it has like the doesn't it have lights inside it as well? Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was designed so that you can go inside the ball. Um, after building that first ball, a lot of the feedback that I got was. People were like, oh, I want to live inside that thing or I just want to go inside it. But it was the original one was solid. You know, it's built out of foam and metal. And so there was no inside other than uh, the, the uh, foam core. But this one, uh, we built it. So it's kind of like a UFO. It has a door that opens up. You have stairs that go inside of it. There's a uh, a big dance. It's like a diamond plate dance floor. And the insides, so you can actually party inside a disco ball, which is a unique experience. Uh, the acoustics. Be the disco ball. <laughs> <laughs> Be, yes. And uh, 
Yeah, and uh, at the one of the festivals we're taking it out to this year, we're going to put some disco balls inside the disco ball, so it's very oh, meta. Yeah, that's that's quite a meta concept. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's a it's a really fun project, um, and uh, yeah, it's we I designed it so that it could sit on a pedestal, you know, so it has these legs that kind of look like a UFO landing pod. Um, so for a lot of events. Um, you know, you you don't have an opportunity to have a crane in that area or whatever it is. So it can sit on the ground and rotate or you can open the door. People can get inside of it or you can uh, hang it from a crane over an audience. So um, some of the festivals this year, we're going to be doing both uh, having it on the ground. And then there's another one that's sort of a surprise. Uh, I can't talk about it, but um, at one of the concerts, it's going to come out as a big sort of grand finale surprise oh, nice. at one of the concerts. So, uh, yeah, so, cool. so can you be in it uh, when they hang it, or do, or is there a <laughs> rule, or do you have like a, a is there a restriction against that, or is that just a bad idea? Uh, it's possible that someone could be in it, but we, I wouldn't suggest that be, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because then they just have to sit there until it's back down on the ground. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about um, the Art Alliance, the Utah Art Alliance. How did that come to be? How, how did you how did you start that? Sure. Um, so a long time ago, well, so I kind of started out as an artist uh, that um, was looking for opportunities in the community to show my work and connect my work with the community. And I was getting shut down uh, from there, especially at that point in time, uh, tw- going back about 20, 25 years ago in Salt Lake City. Um, not a lot of opportunity. There was a handful of galleries um, that uh, were not really focused on emerging or uh, non-traditional art, like kind of like a lot of the stuff I would be making. Um, and then I also had a lot of friends that were musicians or dancers or um, all, all different sorts of artists um, that were also having struggling with the same sort of problem is that there just wasn't opportunities to show our work or perform, connect uh, with our art with the community. And so basically just kind of started doing it myself. Um, and originally it was called Derek Dyer. Or originally what I was doing was called Derek Dyer Productions, just kind of my own little production company where I would do art shows, concerts. I did Haunted House. I did a maze. Uh, I brought in some uh, – some uh, circuses, like circus-type performances, some underground circuses um, into town uh, that did not have any animals involved with them, I should point out. Um, And so I was just kind of doing a bunch of different stuff. And then when the Olympics came up, um, you know, I was really frustrated with how we dealt with uh, presenting our local arts community to the world. Um, You know, I kind of felt like the world was coming to our house and Mm – but uh, all the art that they decided to hang on the wall was from artists that weren't here. You know, they weren't um, – which I love the, the – you know, they had the Cultural Olympiad and there was um, like the Chihuly exhibit and all of that, which is amazing. And I, I don't think that they should not have done that. But um, I – me and, and most of the local artists felt like, hey, this is our – this is our home. We should be the ones in front showing our right. work, performing – uh, doing all of that. And so uh, during the Olympics, I threw a big two-week event um, showcasing 80 local artists. And uh, it was the t- the entire two weeks of the Olympics. And then we had three uh, bands or performers playing each night of that. And so that was kind of really kind of the first thing that started Utah Arts Alliance in a way because it got a lot of attention from the city, a lot of our leaders, a lot of um, – a lot of folks w- looked at that and said, this is exactly what we want to see happen. How can we support you? 
And at the time, um, you know, I've I've never had a lot of money. You know, I grew up uh, without a ton of resources. And so even back then, I was just kind of footing the bill and didn't have a lot of money. You know, I was just working as a graphic designer and, didn't, you know, I was just kind of figuring out creatively how to do these kinds of things mm-hmm. without much revenue or money. So to, how are you get how, how are you able to get people to come to your event with so little to like so little, not little to offer, but you know what you're saying, so little resources. Yeah. Well, on that particular event, we had 80 artists and then we had um, the three different groups or performers or bands or whatever that would play each night. And so a lot of it was word of mouth from just the local community reaching out to them. And then um, we had a big banner up and it was right. uh, The gateway had just, you know, been finished at that point in time. The location of this was right next door to the gateway in a big, what is now a storage facility uh, unit. Um, But it's uh, at the time it was just a big warehouse that I'd rented out for the, um, for the Olympics and next door to the warehouse was club ice, uh, which uh, was just a club that they opened during the Olympics, which was uh, called club access before that. And so it was right across the street from that. So we were, we're kind of in a good focal area or kind of a central area for nightlife and um, like post Olympic uh, celebration sort of activity. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so we were able to get a good turnout because of that. It's really fascinating that you were able to take something that you saw that, that wasn't quite right. You know, they're not showing Utah artists and, and turn it into something huge that is all Utah artists. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And that, and that kind of goes back to the core of Utah arts Alliance. So, um, so basically the momentum from that event was what uh, created Utah Arts Alliance. So mm-hmm. people were like, this is awesome. This is exactly what we need. We need someone to advocate for our local artists and do cool, fun stuff. And um, so I talked to uh, several people that I love and trust, one of which is Jill Remington Love, who's currently the uh, director of arts and heritage at the state. But at the time, she was a brand new city council person. Uh, she rec- uh, she recommended that I start a nonprofit and um, so that was kind of started the ball rolling on what would eventually become the Utah Arts Alliance. And at the very core of what we do is that we provide venues, programs and facilities, mostly focusing on supporting artists and connecting the artist work with the community. Um, and because of that, uh, uh, it's grown. And there was a big need for that, obviously, because this organization has grown into one of the largest organizations in the state. Uh, we have seven cultural facilities who are the largest independent cultural facilities administrator in the state. Um, we have uh, three major festivals that we throw, as well as a community radio station, a bunch of programs. And then the collaborations are all over the place with uh, all of many different events, festivals, programs, schools, all these different things. Um, we have our hands in a lot of places and make a lot of impact uh, across the community in yeah, Utah. It really has grown into something quite big and quite awesome, it's awesome. frankly. It's it's amazing <laughs> that, that you're supporting art on this level. Yeah. Uh, we were talking earlier um, before the show about how you you have so many I mean you've you've got the you've got parties, you've got festivals, you you've got an, an alliance. How many things do you have going on currently that is that are art related? Um <clears throat> I don't know how many the number exactly would be, but um, I do know that I can tell you we have, like I said, seven cultural facilities. Mm-hmm. Two of them are kind of in the works. So we have the new dreamscapes that we're uh, building at the shops at Southtown that should be done in the next couple of weeks. Um, that's a major project, 100,000 square foot uh, immersive art space build out. 
Um, and then the new, the other new thing that we're doing is the Art Castle, which is renovating a 125-year-old uh, historic, beautiful church building. We're calling it the Art Castle. That'll but at one point it was a recording studio mm-hmm. for uh, for some pretty some pretty big names recorded some some good albums there. Yeah, yeah. LAE Studios was located in the building and uh, world famous recording studio that a lot of people locally maybe didn't know about. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's a it's kind of a hidden gem. Yeah. You know? Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> But yeah, that in that building, Dolly Parton, Elton John, BB King, Eminem, all these people have recorded there. You know, thousands of artists uh, have recorded there, and a lot of uh, movie soundtracks, um, uh, a lot of work for Pixar, Disney, Star Wars, Marvel. Um, it's um, incredible the impact that that studio has had on uh, culture worldwide, and so. We get to continue the story of the special building, you know, with what we're going to do with it, which would be a, an immersive art space, a performing art space, sort of a community um, gathering space. And uh, we have a lot of really cool plans in store for that. But, yeah, basically with the seven facilities, the three festivals, like this week is Mural Fest, that is a collaboration with South Salt Lake City Arts Council um, that is, uh, you know, the murals are being put up right now. Urban Arts Festival, Illuminate, which is a Utah's Light Art and Creative Technology Festival, and then KUAA, which is our radio station, 99.9 FM, um, Connect, which is a program that uh, connects artists together, and uh, it's kind of a professional development program for artists, and that happens in Salt Lake, Ogden, and we're starting it in St. George this year. So it's hard to put a number on exactly how many things, um, but I normally kind of talk about definitely it. a lot. I yeah. mean, it, it reaches into into a lot of aspects of art and uh, creative, just the creative fields in general. Yeah, in Utah, the, it, I kind of uh, a lot of times I kind of talk about it like it's um, essentially like twelve different businesses, you know, under one umbrella of Utah Arts Alliance. But those all the different facilities and programs and events are all kind of like their own brand and their own, you know thing that uh, it all kind of comes together under the organization, though. All right. So we're going to take a little break here. We're with the executive director of the Utah Arts Alliance, Derek Dyer. We're going to be talking more about his path of art. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we are back with Derek Dyer, the executive director of the Utah Arts Alliance. Very talented guy and uh, very resourceful. Uh, I wanted to get into uh, some of the some of the experiences that you had along this journey that we talked about of building the Art Alliance. Were there any moments where you weren't sure that this wasn't going to work out? Um I mean, yes, uh, you you try your best and hope for the best, uh, and you can't always control what other people do or what the situation is. Um, so, yeah, we've had a lot of challenges over the years, uh, for sure. Um, initial, uh, when I first started Utah Arts Alliance, I um, literally had no money, uh, and uh, the organization had no money. 
uh, Red Rock uh, Brewery actually donated five hundred dollars for us to uh, submit our five hundred one c three paperwork to the IRS, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and it took a good um, it took a good ten years probably of me working other jobs before I was able to go full time at the Utah Arts Alliance. You know, so we're about twenty years old now. Um, and so, yeah, during that, especially those formative years, the first couple years, um, it could have probably went any which way. And there was a lot of ta- challenges, um, a lot of failure, um, which is probably the most important part of succeeding is trying again after you fail, you know? So, um, how, how many times, I mean, I mean, you can't, can't count how many times, but how often did you feel like you were failing as you're, as you're going along this path? <laughs> Uh, a lot. I still fail. I still fail a, a lot, and I think that's important. Uh, just part of life and journey. Uh, your your journey to improve and learn more. Because if you're not failing, you're not trying anything new. So I I I don't think failure is a bad thing. Um, I think it's a really good thing. Um, but just not failing in the same way over and over is, <laughs> is right. The Learn, bad thing. Learning from your mistakes. Learning is from important. your mistakes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there was a lot of challenges uh, up uh, along the way. But I really felt like this was the only path for the community and for artists. No one else was really doing anything to help artists out. And so I'm part of that community. And so (laughs) I really didn't see any other option other than to keep going at it. And uh, I was surprised it took so long to get the organization to the point it was um, just because I found that in this community you have to not only prove yourself – but you have to prove yourself 10 times over. Like it's not just a matter of having a good idea and, um, and, uh, going through or, you know, um, accomplishing that, uh, idea or that goal, but you have to do that like a hundred times over in order to get the, the, uh, support that you really need to do something like what we're doing now, you know? So I thought uh, we would probably have that kind of support within a couple of years, but it took about 10 years. <laughs> well, so, so looking back on all of yeah. this, is there, is there a point that you recognize now that was a type of leap of faith where, where you look at it, you look back on it now and you say, if I didn't do that, this probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah. So uh, probably about 10 years ago was when the, I think one of the biggest leaps of faith was cutting or, uh, quitting my other jobs that I had relied on to That's a hard one. pay my bills. That is really hard. <laughs> yeah. And it finally got to a point where um, it was either my, you know, my other job or uh, Utah Arts Alliance and Utah Arts Alliance was my heart and my passion. Um, and I knew that it could succeed if I was able to give it a hundred percent of my attention. And um, so basically I did take that leap of faith um, and it started working out right away actually because um, I didn't find myself split in between doing a bunch of different things. Um, I still, of course, was and still am an artist. So I still kind of had that as a little bit of a side um, hustle, if you were, if you will. But, uh, but yeah, basically being able to, to dedicate yourself 100% uh, to something is that was the biggest thing that really ever since that, that was about probably 12 years ago at this point. Um, Utah Art Science has grown exponentially. You know, at that point in time, I was the first real staff. Like, I didn't pay my, you know, we didn't pay me for the first probably eight years. Right. So the, <laughs> so the owner and operator of everything pretty yeah. much, right? Yeah, exactly. And so um, after, uh, after that, uh, now we have 50 employees, you know, so um, and that's in about a, a 12 year period, you know, so we went from just me to we hired one other person and then... Um, now, this year, I think we've brought on another 
15, 20 people just this year alone because of our growth. So so it's it's just been constant growth since then, which which is big. I mean, uh, most entrepreneurs, they won't see really income until after two years of doing whatever business they start. Well, it was about eight years before the, I got to that point, you know, so so, it was, right. so, so the so first there two was, years would have been good. Right. So there was, <laughs> there was, work out there was like eight years of work that yeah. went into when you decided to let go of the, you know, the corporate model of I'm working here to make money yeah. and then trusting yourself to do all, bring in all the income. Yeah. It was the only way it could have happened. Yeah. And so, uh, and, 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 and why do you say that? It's the only way it could have happened. Um, I didn't have any sort of financial benefactor or a lot of org- a lot of nonprofit organizations are sometimes organized. Oh, there's two ways it can happen. Someone with some re- resources can organize something, put the staff together, hire them, and you have an organization up and running day one. The other way is very grassroots like what I did is like people see a problem that they want to fix and they figure out how to um, – go through this system of being a nonprofit and everything it entails and then trying to build your um, track record and resources to the point where you're actually trying to, or you're actually starting to solve some of those problems. Um, I was, I felt like the only way to really get the organization to grow was to put any revenue that we did generate during those first years back into the organization so that we could just kind of to sustain keep the organization rolling. Um, but then, like I said, at some point it was kind of like something has to give. It grew to a point where it couldn't be run by a volunteer part-time executive director. You know, we needed, uh, someone that was fully committed to it. Um, and, uh, so that's, that was kind of the big leaf of faith and, and it worked out. Um, so you stepped, you stepped into a role that in my mind, I would think that not a lot of people wanted to step into, because most people, most creatives would want to be creating, right? That's mm-hmm. what they want to do. Yeah. And you stepped into this role where, one, you still wanted to create, but you wanted to make this space for creators to be able to create. Yeah, exactly. So as I started throwing some of these like kind of underground art events and stuff like that in the early days, long before Utah Arts Alliance was even a thing, um, I found that that was exactly the point. Most of the artists just wanted to do their art, but they didn't have a a real good business mind or didn't want to go through the trouble of all of the hoops you have to jump through in order to throw an event or to have a space or something like that. And so I, I was like, I don't like writing grants. I don't like doing accounting, but I can do those things because I can force myself to sit down and learn how to do it and figure it out is which, what it takes to accomplish things like that. And so, um, so was it was it hard on an emotional level to to kind of distance yourself a little bit from the art that you wanted to create? Not 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 distance yourself from art, but the ability to do it on a daily basis, where you had to add in all these business things, like like you're saying, accounting. Was it was it hard on an emotional level? It was. It kind of seemed like a little bit of a sacrifice. Um, which it was kind of like building something that could help all artists, including myself, uh, do our thing and make a living off of uh, what we were trying to do. But I had no other re- – and there was no other opportunities, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I might have not – if there was an organization like Utah Arts Alliance, <laughs> I might have not had to start something like Utah Arts right. Alliance in order to find a place for my art to go. And so um, – I kind of felt like in a way, as a lot of artists will say, I can't not, you know, create. That's just in, that's what I, it's, uh, Mm -hmm. I can't, you know, there's no way I cannot do this. And so 
um, if you want, you know, my my takeaway from that was just kind of like uh, I I also cannot not create, but I want to um, have a place to show my art. And if there's no mm-hmm. place to show your art, you just have a bunch of art piled up in your garage. And what good <laughs> is that? You know, so that's why the building the Utah Arts Alliance was so important to me, because as a creative and as an artist, there were no other resources. There was no other resources in this community available to artists like me. Well, with all that you have done, with all this incredible work, you were just recently given the uh, an award from SLCC, the Distinguished Alumni Award. Yeah. Tell me a, l- a little bit about that. What does that entail? Um, yeah, so uh, this is an amazing honor. Very um, surprised <laughs> to have received that. Uh, but yeah, I, um, I attended Salt Lake Community College and got a degree in multimedia design, which... Um, has been super helpful in my whole career because um, I had learned uh, through that process. I learned how to do a little a basics of pretty much everything in the arts, uh, including new media stuff. So traditional arts, drawing, figure drawing, painting, um, uh, perspective painting, all or you know all the basics um, techniques, and then uh, video, web design, three D animation. So you kind of got your feet wet in all these different areas, and I still use all those areas, even though we have a full-time graphic designer and a, and a full-time web designer. I don't do all of that stuff myself anymore, but building the organization I did, I built our own website. I, I had to do all of these things, um, on my own. So, um, that education was very, um, important. And then I also had a really kind of non-traditional situation where I, um, I, I went to some private unaccredited uh, private schools growing up. There were these small kind of Christian schools. Mm-hmm. So when I was able to go to a uh, public school, I didn't have any credits. Uh, and so when my counselor told me that, I just basically was like um, – that was my junior year. Um, so it was like, what do you do now? Yeah, what do I do now? I'm not going to high school for another four years. you know. <laughs> well. So I just basically tested out uh, and spent my senior year at Salt Lake Community College. So I – because I was just like – and I always – I felt arty at that time. The high school was not a place for me. I wasn't – it was – I felt like I didn't belong there. Um, but Salt Lake Community College, you didn't have these kind of childish – high school clicky kind of things that happen. And so you had uh, mostly a lot of adults like working, you know, working full or part time while going to college, which was my case. Uh, I had to work full time since I was about 16, you know, so um, and so I uh, was able to go there, uh, get a good education, helped me um, build Utah Arts Alliance. And then I've been able to give back to the school over the years as a board member of the Grand Theater for a long time. Um, I still serve on the arts and advice or the uh, arts and advisory committee or the I can't remember exactly what it's uh, the advisory committee for the School of Arts, Media and Communication. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. So um, so I was nominated by Richard Scott, who's the dean of the School of Arts, Media and Communication. And he's a man I respect so much. Um, he was the director of the Grand Theater for a long time. And so I kind of knew him from that. And uh, my past experience with um, a lot of friends and family that have been in plays there over the years, uh, I proposed to my wife on the stage of the Grand Theater after oh, wow. a show I produced there. So uh, I have a lot of kind of connections with the or a lot of uh, since I graduated these kind of relationship with the school over the years. And, yeah, they uh, they offered me this great honor. It was it was really wonderful. And um, the commencement was just uh, recently and um, was able to. Uh, you know, be up on stage with um, 
all of the other honorary doctorate uh, people that they awarded and a very, very big honor and uh, yeah, very special. So that was really nice. That's, of them. A, that's amazing. And I'd say it's well-deserved. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I love to see um, people in the creative industries get these kinds of awards because a lot of times you'll see like a tech CEO or someone who right. just makes – not just, not that that's all that tech CEOs do, but someone who's just made a lot of money or been successful because of the revenue their company has generated. But I feel like uh, having a good, real positive impact on the community um, is just as valuable as anything else. So it was nice to um, get that 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 honor. Um, you know, and I kind of, uh, on behalf of the cultural community, you know, like we do so much to improve the quality of life. We do so much for the economy and just like generally making the world a better place to be that it's nice for um, cultural and arts folks to get uh, recognized for our hard work sometimes too. Well, based on your experience it, it, with this path, this amazing path that you have carved for yourself, uh, if if you had a chance to sit down with a, a a starting artist, someone just right out of college. Is there any one piece of advice that you would give to them? Yeah. Um, and I actually get this a lot. Um, I still get a lot of emails that are like um, looking for advice or, you know, I'm just starting out. How do I, how do I build an art career? Things like that. Um, I mean, if I had to just kind of, kind of uh, put it into a short little uh, takeaway snippets, I would say, um, well, first of all, if you're very young, you're probably not as good as you think you are <laughs> yet. You know, like there's the old saying that's that's uh, you need to put 10,000 hours in to become a master. Right. And uh, sometimes you have artists that um, started painting last year and th- they uh, think that they should be um, in the Met, you know, or something now. So, right. mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but not to say that they can't be excellent artists, um, mm-hmm. but you just need to make sure to put in your time. Um, your art is only worth uh, as far as money goes, as much as someone is willing to pay for it. So if you have a very special, important piece to you that's very close to you, I'd recommend keeping that for yourself because um, it's important to you and you might not get the revenue that you think out of that piece um, right. that, you know, because people aren't going to pay for your sentimental attachment to that painting, you know, so that's just something. Right. It might be worth a lot to you, but not necessarily someone that's never seen whatever, like if it's a, you know, someone, you know, yeah. in that painting or whatnot. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, I think, uh, don't give up, you know, don't listen to people who tell you you can't do something. Just keep trying. Don't um, listen to those naysayers. That's right. Don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. You should follow your heart, follow your dream. It's a, it probably sounds a little cliche, but people say that because it's really true. You are a unique individual that there's no one like you on the planet. There's never been anyone like you on the planet. There's never will be anyone like you on the planet. So you have something unique that no one else can add to this uh, world. And so you just need to figure out exactly what that is and um, present that um, in a really good way. And a lot of times that does take a lot of practice. You can't just buy some paint and push it on a canvas and be like, I'm an artist. Buy my, you know, why am I not making a a living um, right away? But uh, if you work on it, you will. There's great careers to be had in art. Um, But I would just say, just, just keep at it. Keep producing. Um, Listen to your heart. Don't try to, um, don't try to accommodate or please other people necessarily. Just follow the the vision that's in your that's in your heart because you have a unique a gift to give the world that no one else has. So that kind of circles back to your revelation of you can do anything with art. Yeah, you can do anything with art. That's right. 
Right. So Derek, what is next for you? What's next for the Yard Alliance? What what do you have what do you have in the future? Um so right now we're wrapping up the new dreamscapes build and so with me I I'm the art basically on top of being the executive director of the organization, I'm the artistic director for dreamscapes. So I help to create a narrative, a new character designs, um sort of the layout and the whole uh feel of dreamscapes and so we're wrapping that up so there's kind of a lot of these these last minute uh uh last uh, uh things to just kind of tie up the art castle will be a project that will be going on for several more years i have a couple uh, about four or five million dollars i need to raise for that project oh wow <laughs> a lot of construction a lot of uh a lot of work needs to be done on that so that'll be a lot of work and then um yeah with my own art like i said i'll be uh i'll be um taking the disco ball around to a couple festivals this summer and um, and I just uh, finished uh, redoing my home studio, so I'm looking forward to oh, nice. doing some uh, doing some painting um, in all of my free time, which doesn't exist. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so a lot a lot going on. But somehow, but somehow you find you find time to still do that. Yeah, if if for nothing else, um, you know, painting is very therapeutic. So mm-hmm. just uh, for me to get in the studio, and even if it's just I'm painting an abstract painting or something. Um, like that. Uh, even if no one ever sees it, I just love the experience of doing that. And it's um, it's wonderful. And maybe uh, uh, I haven't had a show of paintings in about eight years. And so maybe in the next four years or so, I'll have another show one of these days. Uh, where where can they find um, where can they find the Utah Art Alliance? Yeah, so easy. Uh, UtahArts.org is our website, and from there you will be able to access any of our programs, events, facilities, all the things we do. Um, all of our festivals are free, so people can attend Illuminate Urban Arts Festival, Mural Fest. Um, they're all free. And then a lot of our uh, venues are free, such as Urban Arts Gallery, the Bazaar Bazaar, um, and then we have. Uh, so many different opportunities for people to participate in the arts at our theater or any of our other spaces. And so, uh, but yeah, your, your starting point would just be to go to utaharts.org and, and go from there. Well, thank you, Derek, for coming on the show. Um, I, I really appreciate your time. It's been an, a pleasure interviewing you as a creative person. It is often difficult when you start out because art to most people is not a priority and you have made it a priority. And I think that's fantastic. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. And uh, yes, I agree. And um, I wouldn't have it any other way. Thank you for listening to The Path of Art. If you or someone you know is creative and would like to tell your story, reach out to me at rmeeks at ksl.com. I might feature you on the show. If you liked our conversation, please make sure you follow the show and give us a five-star rating and review. It really does help people to discover the show. Also, make sure you follow The Path of Art podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. 
In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.